This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience at a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Alexander Monea about a new book, The Digital Closet, How the Internet Became Straight, an exploration of how heteronormative bias is deeply embedded in the internet, hidden in algorithms, keywords, content moderation, and more. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So how are you? How was your week? Uh, my week was good. Uh, went out to Denver to visit some family. Uh, and it's nice to be able to go see people again. Right. So can you tell us what do you do? Yeah, uh, I'm an assistant professor in the English department and the cultural studies program at George Mason University. Uh, And I study the cultural impact of computation uh, and look at things like fairness, accountability, transparency, and ethics uh, around things like big data, algorithms, internet platforms, uh, and other computer technologies like that. And how did you get interested in studying all of these? so it was kind of a weird process. Uh, I went to grad school because uh, I liked critical theory, uh, but there's not a huge market for that anymore. And so I started looking for an application for critical analysis that there was a job market for. And computer technologies were you know, really taking off as a humanities focus around the time that I went to graduate school. And so I tried my hand at it and ended up really liking it. Uh, you know, I had worked with tech when I was younger, uh, and it was something that I had always done uh, in my free time. And so it just kind of merged with my interest in critical theory and analysis uh, and became a career. And along your career journey, were the mentors that were really supportive of you? Oh, yeah, I had uh, great mentors throughout the the process of getting my graduate degrees. Uh who I'm, you know, still in contact with, and they sort of serve as the the model for what I want to be as a scholar uh, and a mentor going forward. Um, my dissertation advisor was uh, Jeremy Packer, who uh, does sort of Foucauldian media studies, uh, and I couldn't have asked for a, a better mentor throughout the process. Um, and many other people, you know, sort of had lasting impacts uh, on my career throughout my my graduate studies. And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers? Uh, re- regarding what in particular? Specifically in career general? in humanities, somebody who might be interested in studying all of these topics, for example. Yeah, um, I, I try to mentor a lot of the PhD students at, at my program on this as well. And I think some of the things that uh, that are important are to start thinking about professionalization early if you want to go into an academic career uh, because there's long delays with a lot of things in the academy. The time it takes to publish an article, the time it takes to you know uh, propose, go to, and present at a conference uh, can be longer than expected. And you need to have these things done by the time that you hit the job market. So sort of planning your uh, sort of four-year, five-year, six-year calendar uh, in advance and trying to stick to it uh, is a really important goal to set uh, to have leverage once you get on the job market because it's a it's a brutal job market and we're producing too many PhDs for too few jobs uh, and so 
doing anything to sort of give yourself a, a leg up in the competition is important, as is increasingly exploring uh, alternative career paths. Uh, more and more people are writing about them, more and more people are doing them. Uh, it's underrepresented in the academy, but uh, sort of doing that research as well to try to figure out the ways that you can translate an advanced degree in the humanities to uh, careers outside of the academy is increasingly important. Um, what so specifically do you like about being in academia? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I got into it because I, I love research and writing. Uh, so I think different people get into it for different reasons, right? Because the, the job has really three primary components, right? Research and writing is a huge uh, prong of the, the workload, as is teaching and mentoring, uh, as is service, you know, contributing to running a university. Uh, and different people find different aspects of it uh, rewarding in different ways. Uh, and for me, it was the the research and writing that, that really is the the sticking point that I don't think I could give up. It's something that I think I would continue to do even if I left academia, uh, just because it's uh, sort of a passion for me. Um, you know, I love all of the other components. I love contributing to to university and helping it, you know, continue its operations. Uh, I love mentoring students. I love teaching, but but none of it really uh, hits home as much as the the research and writing. I, you know, I don't think I could stop doing it if I tried. So your latest book is The Digital Closet, How the Internet Became Straight. So how did you come to writing it? Yeah, it's actually a, it was a weird process. It, it wasn't based on my dissertation research. So I'm an early career scholar. So, you know, the expectation usually is that you'll work first on turning your dissertation project into a book. Uh, and this project came about much differently. It, it I sort of stumbled into it and it just grew and grew. Uh, so, you know, when I graduated, I had been working on some natural language processing algorithms, uh, and I got invited to be on a panel with some friends at a visual studies focused conference, and the, the panel was much more focused on visual studies. Uh, and so I decided that image recognition algorithms were structurally similar enough to some of the natural language processing algorithms that I've been looking at that you know, I could make the, the transition without having to do a, a ton of new research. Uh, and as I started digging into it, I tried to think of an image recognition algorithm that, that actually worked, right? Because many of the ones that I was familiar with from following tech news were uh, examples of, you know, hilariously bad uh, image recognition algorithms, right? They would think that, uh, I don't know, that a, a house was the moon or that a, a banana was a school bus or things like that. Uh, and so I tried to think of a, an image recognition algorithm that was actually operating successfully online. And the best ones that I could think of were ones that were uh, filtering porn, right? Because when I was uh, growing up on the internet, you just came across porn all the time because it would uh, appear in Google image search results, it would appear in normal Google search results. Uh, and somewhere along the way, that just stopped happening. It all sort of disappeared. Uh, and so I thought that that this would be a good place to, to start looking at image recognition algorithms because it was the one place that I saw them actually operating at scale and operating somewhat successfully. And as I started digging into it, I just started finding these glaring biases uh, in their data sets, uh, in the training parameters, uh, in their actual operation online, uh, and in the sort of culture and policies uh, in Silicon Valley that sort of undergirded their implementation. Uh, and so I tried to write it up as a short article. Uh, and every time I would send it out for publication, I'd get, you know, feedback that pushed it in new directions. And it just kept growing and growing until it was too long to be an article. And so I, you know, went to MIT and pitched it as a, a short book. And then as I got more and more feedback, it grew and grew. And now it's a, a regular sized book. Uh, so it was really, you know, something that I that grew out of a, a small project. And uh, as I sort of shared it with people and got feedback with them. It just kept growing and growing until the only thing it could be was, was a book. All right. So let's delve into some of the story and all the concepts that you present. So can we start with a bit of an overview of early days of the internet and uh, what kind of groups were there and who were, were where, basically? Yeah. I mean, 
that history could start at a lot of different points in the internet, right? You could go back to uh, bulletin board systems in the very early 90s. Uh, you could go to uh, chat rooms and AOL communities and things like that in the late 90s. Uh, and at you know, at the tail end of that point and into the 2000s, you could look at things like people having their own GeoCities pages, Angel Fire pages, their own live journals and Zangas and things like that. Uh, and I think the the difference then was that uh, content was distributed uh, all around the internet uh, instead of centralized in a very small handful of platforms. So, you know, if, if one area of the internet had, you know, sort of rules around what content you could post uh, and who could see it, uh, it didn't have as big of an impact on the internet as a whole. Uh, but as we've seen the, the advertising model for generating revenue and the platform model take over to the point now where, you know, most people's experience of the internet is mediated by a handful of companies, whether it's Google uh, or Facebook or Apple through their control of what apps can be on an iPhone. Uh, uh, it's a very small handful of companies that, that control what we see and what we don't see. And because of that, the policies that they enact and the algorithms that they produce to sort of police the, the content that's produced on these platforms have an inordinate impact on the internet as a whole. So how did uh, this start to change, and especially with regards to groups like LGBTQIA+. Um, I think that it changed in a number of ways, right? So the, the first way that it changed was the, the way that I was just talking about, right? The, the increasing centralization of the internet uh, as people got, you know, corralled into a handful of platforms uh, meant that those platforms' policies had an inordinate impact. And because those platforms are run by a very small workforce, right? Uh, Facebook or Google, for instance, employs very few people relative to the uh, revenue that they generate and the impact that they have globally when you compare them historically to, to other industries or other companies, uh, a, a very small handful of people have a, have a huge impact. And those people just because of historic problems in uh, uh, the gendering of computer science uh, and the uh, pathway to employment and education in computer science uh, tended to be uh, cis heterosexual men uh, and predominantly white men. And so, you know, th their sort of perspectives and biases uh, are uh, shot through the policies, the, you know, terms and conditions, the uh, community standards and the algorithms that control these platforms. So I think that's one major way that queer content came to be increasingly censored. Uh, and the other is sort of an ongoing uh, war on pornography, right? Uh, the popular conception is that in the 90s, when the internet increasingly entered, you know, everyday households, that uh, it became impossible to stop pornography from flooding into people's homes. Uh, and in this narrative, we understand uh, sort of anti-pornography activism as, as stopping in the 90s, right? Like people just threw their hands up, gave up, and let the internet do its thing. Uh, and in contrast to this, I try to show in the book that, that this never really stopped. Uh, it just got buried in the headlines or was ignored because uh, supposedly more important things were going on. And people have been organizing uh, uh, anti-pornography campaigns ever since the 90s and with a lot of success, whether that means implementing filters in libraries or public schools or other places where people can publicly access the internet that uh, block pornography uh, uh, or increasingly uh, getting pornography blocked on all of these different platforms. Uh, these activists have been uh, mobile and successful. And because they're uh, pushing this really extreme version of never letting a single piece of pornography uh, get through a filter, uh, they make these filters really oversensitive, right? Uh, because for them, it's better that, uh, you know, a bunch of non-pornographic content gets censored than for one single piece of pornography to get through. And it just so happens that the, the false positives, the things that are non-pornographic but trigger these filters tend to inordinately be uh, LGBTQIA plus content. Uh, this happens because they 
have sexuality as a as a core part of the identity and thus they talk about sex uh, in different aspects of the content that they produce. Uh, it happens because the over-sexualization and pornographication of, of the identities themselves uh, that trigger these filters. Uh, the, there's many different reasons, but the, the oversensitivity of, of the filters tends to uh, inordinately impact uh, queer content online uh, and the concentration of users into a few digital platforms gives an inordinate impact uh, to those few platforms as policies and algorithms that happen to be designed by predominantly white, cisgender, heterosexual men. So what kind of non-pornographic uh, queer content was conflated with uh, this um, uh, sort of explicit content? Yeah, there's a ton of it. And the book uh, has a whole chapter that really just tries to collect examples of this. Because one of the things I found was that whenever something would get blocked, People would claim that it was an accident, that it was a, a unique uh, instance, and it wasn't representative of how the system was operating as a whole. Essentially, content creators were getting gaslit and told that it was only them that was experiencing this. Uh, and so I tried to catalog tons of examples of this, uh, and you find it all across the internet. Uh, you find art being censored frequently. Uh, so recently, uh, uh, Italian museums have been starting OnlyFans' pages so that they can share oil portraits uh, without getting censored on internet platforms. Uh, you find uh, uh, literature getting censored. You find uh, queer community building, uh, queer activism, uh, advertisements for queer events getting censored. Uh, you find, uh, you know, for instance, uh, a feminist... Uh, uh, sex education and condom production company uh, got deplatformed uh, despite Trojan being able to place advertisements on all of these sites uh, and access financial services. Uh, queer friendly uh, and body positive uh, sex toy manufacturers uh, get censored across all of these platforms, despite the fact that mainstream uh, sex toys are uh, available through uh, web portals on Amazon or Walgreens uh, or CBS uh, and can be posted about in mainstream uh, social media platforms. Uh, so it, it's really runs the, the gamut from, you know, banal content like literature, art, things like that, uh, to queer centered uh, community and activism content uh, online uh, to uh, things that are peripheral to to, to sex, but non-pornographic, anything from uh, sex education to content that talks about pornography and sexuality uh, to people that, you know, run stores that sell things ranging from condoms to sex toys, uh, all of which don't really meet the standard for what we understand as pornography today. Does this also include some of the health related content as well? So maybe access to gender positive uh, healthcare or something like that? Uh, I'm sure it does. I, I didn't find a specific example when I was digging through looking for uh, uh, instances of, uh, you know, gender affirming care being censored, but it would fit the the sort of model for things that are getting censored. The problem that I found looking at a lot of this stuff is that you know, no one has really historically been collecting this data. What you find is, you know, here and there, people will post uh, on Twitter or post on uh, uh, Reddit or another platform that, that their content has been censored. They'll give a little description of the content. Uh, and you kind of have to dig those cases out one by one and hope that they persist. A few cases end up getting written up in uh, newspapers and magazines, uh, but that's really the archive that you're relying on to try to understand how censorship has been operating across these platforms for the past decade plus. Uh, and it's a really uh, ephemeral archive to, to try to analyze because these posts get uh, deleted uh, as people delete their accounts. Uh, they get uh, taken down when people set their accounts to private mode. Uh, and the only ones that you find are people that, you know, manage to post about their content getting taken down and get enough engagement that it pops up in, in search results. So, uh, you know, it's really hard to do a, a systemic analysis of what's being censored online, uh, particularly around queer content. Uh, but it's something that 
you know, I think we can work on moving forward. Uh, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later. But uh, basically, I'd, I'd say that, you know, I haven't found that particular example, but it, it would not surprise me to, to find it. And it, it fits the mold of a lot of the other things that I found being censored. Yeah, for sure. It's really concerning. Hmm. So who are the primary censors? So you already touched up on it, uh, like citing uh, Twitter or Facebook or the b- bigger corporations. Can it also be community driven? So, for example, some actors that uh, have uh, ideologies that do not uh, sort of fit in with uh, something like that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So two things here. First, I'd say that uh, the platforms that are doing this go beyond the usual suspects that you would expect. Right. So, of course, we see huge participation from platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Google, uh, you know, the, the major tech companies that you think of when you uh, imagine Silicon Valley in your head, but it extends equally to uh, financial service providers online. And that's where it tends to have inordinate material impacts on the everyday lives of, of content creators uh, and sex workers in particular online. Uh, so you can also think of places like Venmo, PayPal, Patreon, uh, and more traditional banks uh, as well uh, tend to deny financial services to people that they think are making pornographic content. Uh, And this is triggered both by algorithmic review, uh, by human review, and by community flagging features, which are, as you noted, uh, utilized in a coordinated fashion by uh, certain hate groups online. Uh, So one of the ones that I was tracking was uh, the ways in which uh, alt-right trolls online banded together to try to de-platform online sex workers. Uh, It happened in around 2017. Uh, They called it the Thought Audit. Uh, Thought, for listeners that don't know, is spelled T-H-O-T. It's uh, slang that stands for that hoe over there. It's a derogatory term for... uh, a woman that is understood to be uh, sexually available. Uh, and so the, the thought audit was uh, uh, organized by, you know, alt-right trolls online. I call them digital misogynists at, at points in the book. Uh, and the goal was to bulk report uh, online sex workers to the IRS for not paying their taxes. Uh, and what they quickly found out was that although you could potentially reap a 30% reward uh, on back taxes that the IRS collects when you report people to them, it's really difficult. Uh, You have to fill out a a long document that has lots of information about the individual you're reporting and precise information about, you know, sort of the the taxes that they withheld. Uh, So that plan was, was given up, but in place, Uh, they decided that it would be easier to use the community standards of multiple platforms to try to de-platform online sex workers. Uh, And so they wrote uh, bots or web crawlers to crawl sex work sites uh, and look for social media links. And they built a database of this. And uh, these digital misogynists would spend all day uh, bulk reporting uh, predominantly women and queer sex workers online to different platforms to get them kicked off. Uh, And this had really two impacts, right? So if you run uh, uh, an OnlyFans, for instance, there's not really a built-in search feature. You have to drive traffic to your OnlyFans page by running uh, public-facing social media, like an Instagram, uh, a Facebook, things like that, where you post uh, sort of provocative content that flirts with the, the boundaries of the, the community uh, terms and conditions, but, but doesn't cross them. Uh, and so when you get a, a sex worker deplatformed on Instagram, for instance, that, that really disrupts their ability to, to drive traffic to the platform where they're, they're actually generating revenue. Uh, and secondly, they did this to their financial service providers. They did this to people that maintained Amazon wish lists as a way to, to send them money, to people that used Patreon uh, or Venmo or PayPal or other financial services online. Uh, and this led to them getting kicked off, their funds being seized that were left in their account uh, and their inability to collect payments online. Um, and so uh, it, it had a huge impact. Uh, and things like this still go on. They're not in as great of an organized uh, fashion as it is, was during the thought audit, but this is just an example of, of how it can occur when it's coordinated. Uh, 
everyday users continue to to flag content in a heteronormative fashion to try to police platforms uh, and deplatform queer people uh, and sex workers in particular. So you already touched up on uh, some of the implications that this could have uh, on on people. So what else can this really impact? Yeah, I think it, it, well, part of it's hard to say, right? Because I think that the the demographic uh, that's impacted by this that I'm sort of most worried about is one of the most understudied, uh, and that's uh, queer youth and the way that they uh, experience pornography online uh, and the way that they experience uh, non-pornographic content online. Uh, so I think that it has a, a huge potential to uh, disrupt the internet's ability to help people explore, understand, develop uh, their identity, uh, particularly people that grow up in areas where it isn't safe uh, or comfortable to do that in real life uh, or in public. Uh, and I think that that's one huge material impact is that uh, it's really going to uh, disrupt the, the queer community's ability to, to queer youth's ability to sort of explore, develop, and implement their own sort of sexual identities. Um, and, you know, I was talking to uh, another interviewer a few weeks ago and, and he made a really great point, which was that, uh, you know, as these resources have moved online, a lot of the physical spaces where this used to happen have closed, right? Uh, and so a lot of the physical infrastructure that maybe used to exist to, to sort of help build queer community has moved online. And as it gets deplatformed, we don't really have those backups to rely on. So uh, it's, it's really going to, to disrupt that capacity uh, going forward. Uh, I also think it has a, a really strong material impact uh, on sex workers. Uh, as they get deplatformed, uh, as they uh, are unable to access financial services, uh, and as their own uh, sort of tools that they built to sort of rate and review clients so that you could tell if someone that you were going to work with was dangerous uh, got deplatformed uh, online, these people had to return to sort of going in the streets, uh, accepting anonymous clients and accepting cash payments, all of which are uh, a recipe for uh, precarity and physical harm. Uh, and the sort of precarity that you face in those situations is is worsened uh, as you participate in more and more mar marginalized identity categories, right? So as I was researching this, getting deplatformed was, you know, financially disastrous and dangerous uh, as a woman. If you're a black woman, it's worse. Uh, if you're a trans disabled uh, black woman, uh, you know, you bear the brunt of this uh, even worse, right? You made less money on those platforms to begin with, uh, and you face more danger going back uh, into physical spaces to do, you know, in-person sex work or sex work that isn't mediated through sort of online tools and technologies. What kind of safeguards are there or some kind of pushback from this community against all of this? So I don't think there has been enough yet, but I think that this is a, a strong community to, to look to, to to begin doing it. So um, let me explain a little bit more. So I, I'd say that I think up to this point, a lot of people that have been sort of pointing this out have been gaslit uh, and the sort of discourses that we need to, to sort of map out what's going on and build a strategy to resist it haven't been in conversation with each other. Uh, so the research that we need uh, and the thinking that we need to, to sort of address what's going on has been going on in very different places uh, with, uh, you know, think tanks and scholars and researchers that, that aren't all in conversations with each other. Uh, so what I'm hoping the, the book does is start to build some of these uh, connections, right? Because in my research, I cited people from many, many different disciplines, uh, some of which uh, were totally new to me, uh, to try to bring this research into conversation uh, and, and build a sort of platform to, to sort of critique what's going on online. Uh, and I also hope that, you know, the book is systematic enough that people can hold it up uh, and say, like, look, it's not just me, uh, and sort of stop the gaslighting, uh, which I think is a, a first step to, you know, building a more uh, sustained uh, practice of, you know, demanding 
redress for these things that are going on online. Uh, and I think that the, the queer community is the, the right community to, to do this, right? They already have strong grassroots networks and activists and organizing networks uh, in place uh, that have had historic successes uh, over the past 50 years in the United States. Uh, of course, uh, they're not where they want to be, and they still have lots more battles to fight. Uh, but I think this is one that they're, uh, you know, sort of grassroots organizing base is is really strong for addressing. I also think that uh, a lot of these uh, companies want government contracts, and with that comes Title IX compliance. Uh, and so I think you know Title IX might be a really useful legal strategy for uh, intervening with these companies uh, and trying to force them to uh, change some of their policies. Uh, and if the legal route doesn't work, I think the public relations route does work, right? Uh, it's a huge embarrassment for these companies when uh, these stories break through and get coverage in something like the New York Times or the Washington Post. That doesn't happen enough because we're not cataloging what's going on. We're not producing enough stories about it. We're not pushing on mainstream media to report it. Uh, but by creating sort of PR nightmares for these companies repeatedly, uh, you can get them to change policies, right? So uh, a big example of this would be from uh, the mid 2000s into like 2015, uh, breastfeeding mothers weren't allowed to post uh, pictures of themselves uh, uh, online as they're breastfeeding, uh, and they went through systematic campaigns where they would continue to post these pictures, uh, take screenshots when they uh, had these pictures deleted or when their accounts got banned, they would contact reporters, uh, and eventually they managed to win a carve-out in really almost all social media platforms today where if you want to uh, post pictures uh, of, of breastfeeding uh, or other like sort of birth-related uh uh, phenomena that that violate content policies, uh, they're judged much more liberally than any other content would be. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, the queer community has a, a good organizing base to push back, and we have some models for uh, how these campaigns have been led before. And it, it's very possible to to get changes made to the algorithms, to the uh, community standards, uh, and to other policies to try to mitigate some of this. Uh, as I say in the book, I think that that's like uh, plugging a hole in a sinking ship. I think the problems are are much bigger and might need much more sort of revolutionary action than that. But if you're looking for something that that we could do right now and the right community to do it to sort of mitigate some of these harms, I think that's a, a really good first step. That's an excellent example about the uh, breastfeeding images. And here, what seems to have changed is how the, the public perceives the specific uh, instance so if um, the queer content is being uh, basically censored as uh, heteronormative pornographic or uh, in that area, that's how public starts perceiving it, even though it is not uh, pornographic as such. Yeah, uh, in some ways, I agree with you. I, I think that you are right that, that public perception matters, but I, I don't think that... Uh, that public perception alone matters, right? These companies are, are very willing to do things that are at odds with uh, sort of public perception uh, or public demand when they can get away with it or when they can hide it uh, or obscure it from public view, right? Whether that's uh, sort of uh, privacy invasive data collection uh, or, uh, you know, um, mixing marketing results or advertising results with organic results that you don't know if what you're seeing uh, is there because you searched for it or there because someone paid to put it there. Uh, they do all sorts of things like this that that the public, uh, when polled, already wouldn't agree with. It, it's whether they can get away with it. And so I think it, it's much more uh, about holding them accountable and holding them to sort of public standards uh, that we all hold now than it, than it is about, you know, shaping or changing public perception. I think public perception is already where it needs to be for the most part, uh, or as close as it can be in a, in a country this polarized uh, as the, you know, the, and I say a country because these social media platforms are largely based in the U.S. and they uh, largely make their policies based on U.S. cultural norms, and then they export them around the world. There's a huge amount of cultural imperialism going on here. And so, uh, you know, the the sort of public perception uh, in the U.S. and the community standards here uh, also have an inordinate impact globally. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'd say that the public perception here is is already 
what it needs to be uh, or as close as it could be in a, a country this polarized. So is this mostly the case for the centralized internet? So what about decentralized? Yeah, so I think that this is the, the point of the book that is, again, in need of study, but uh, interesting and, uh, uh, in, sorry, let me start again. Uh, I'd say that I think that this is the point of the book that, uh, that needs further study, uh, but also that is really interesting. Uh, and so I do think that, that it is the case that there are aspects of the internet that are, are decentralized and that escape some of this uh, overbroad censorship. Uh, I mean, people are pushing to uh, legislate this at the level of internet service providers. Uh, so like, you know, the company that gives you Wi-Fi could be taking down sites. Uh, but we really haven't seen that, that come through fully, uh, at least not in the U.S., uh, there were plans to do it much more systemically in Britain uh, over the past decade that uh, have fallen apart recently. Uh, so we're not quite there yet, but that, that's a possibility in the future. So, so for now, there are still sort of decentralized nodes uh, mm. on the internet where queer content can persist. I think the, the issue is how do you get to those nodes? How do you find them? Especially if you're someone that that hasn't been there before or someone that isn't already, you know, deeply enmeshed in a queer community where, you know, sort of references to them can spread by, by word of mouth, right? What do you do when uh, Google doesn't index those sites or provide them anywhere near the top of the search results for people to find them? Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially people that are in their thirties uh, or over, like I am, uh, have the assumption that young people are really great with technology, right? That they can just do whatever they want with technology because they're able to operate an iPhone or uh, something like that. And what I find, you know, working with young people in the classroom all the time is that they don't have the, the internet literacy that we expect. They're not really great at finding things online. Uh, they're not great at manipulating Google search results to get to the thing that they want. Uh, they're used to navigating the internet through you know, these few platforms uh, and a lot of them don't go much deeper than that. Uh, and so you know, my main worry is that while these things might persist, uh, they're not accessible to, to new users or users that haven't already found them, right? So maybe you'll make the discovery you know, in your 20s or your 30s, when you you meet other queer people, hopefully, and they sort of tell you by word of mouth where to go or what you might want to look at. Uh, but even in that scenario, you know, you're going to spend formative years of your life uh, unable to access this sort of content. Uh, and you need that content earlier, or at least the best studies that I've been able to find indicate that, you know, you need that content when you're like, 14, 15, 16, right? In your teen years and your adolescence uh, as you're developing. And so I think that while that content may still persist online, I, I have real questions about uh, uh, how visible and accessible it is, uh, particularly to uh, youth as they're learning to navigate the internet and the, the normative function that the content they are able to find is going to, to have on their sort of development. That's an excellent point. Um it's sort of it's sort of being driven again to the periphery or even underground. You know, it has to be visible, as you say. Yeah, I mean that's the central metaphor of the book, right? The idea that there's a, a digital closet, right? These things are uh, being allowed to to persist online uh, with a certain silence or in certain closeted zones. Uh, you know, it, it's trying to to make a new public space where sexuality is not a factor. Uh, and you, we know from historical studies that when you sort of uh, invisibilize sexuality or, or try to make it a, a non-factor in the public sphere, uh, heterosexuality becomes the, the default norm. Uh, and so I, I think that's exactly what we're seeing online is that these uh, queer spaces are being pushed to the margin, uh, they're being closeted, uh, and to participate in the, you know, public sphere online, uh, you're increasingly bracketing or invisibilizing your uh, queer sexuality. Uh, and you can see many of examples of this online. So one of the, the most frightening ones I saw was uh, YouTube has a restricted mode that you can enable, and it's meant to sort of guide the content that people under 18 see. So 
parents can turn it on uh, and lock it so their children only see YouTube through restricted mode. Uh, schools and libraries can do this too. Uh, and there's a, a very popular uh, YouTuber named Neon Fiona that is bisexual. Uh, and she makes content uh, about her sort of uh, coming out stories and her first dates and her first partners uh, uh, that were both uh, male and female identified, right? So you can sort of learn about her dating history as a bisexual person through her, through her channel. She does a lot of other content, but this is interspersed there. Uh, and when you toggle on restricted mode, when you're looking at her videos, uh, all of the videos uh, about her dating women disappear, but all of the videos about her dating men stay. And so you can literally change her identity from uh, bisexual to straight just by toggling this uh, button on the side of her YouTube channel. Uh, and I think that this is really indicative of, of what's going on, right? Uh, people are being increasingly closeted and uh, rendered uh, heterosexual by default, uh, by the content filters that are controlling what we see and what we don't see online. So what are some of those radical changes that we require to really address these issues? Yeah. So I, I think that the radical changes are the, the hardest ones to imagine, right? Because, well, for a number of reasons, one, I'm just a single person, right? Uh, and I'm a white cisgender male. And so you know, my perspective, A, shouldn't be the most important and B, isn't, uh, uh, you know, the necessary confluence of uh, democratic decision making to sort of guide larger changes like that. So I'd, I'd start with the sort of caveat that, you know, my perspective is really limited and I'd really invite people to to push past it, to change it, to, to make it their own, even if that means, you know, deleting or uh, uh, critiquing anything that I've done. Uh, I'd also say that, you know, the revolutionary changes are, are really contextual and historical when, when you look in history, right? It's really, it's really hard to imagine uh, uh, a revolution, let alone a, a post-revolutionary state uh, in advance, even if in retrospect, it, it looks like it was predetermined. Uh, so, you know, some of these things are uh, more concrete. Some of them are, are vaguer, right? So I'd say that some of the models that I see that I, I think work would be, uh, you know, governing uh, internet platforms as public utilities. I think that they should be uh, democratically owned and governed. Uh, they're too big to be the private fiefdoms of uh, white cisgender billionaires. Um, I think that's one main route. Uh, I think that uh, there's significant overlap between uh, what I see uh, in the book and the initiatives of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that the criminalization of sex work uh, is at the heart of many of the problems here, and it's part of what makes uh, getting deplatformed so dangerous, and it's part of what uh, sort of incentivizes internet platforms to overregulate uh, and overblock content. Uh, so I think movements uh, around abolishing police and uh, reforming criminal justice are, are also really central to this. Uh, I think a broader movement around uh, finding a way to actually make our democracy in the United States work for us and be representative of us is also equally important because how can we rely on, uh, you know, bureaucrats and regulators to, you know, police these internet platforms when they are totally unresponsive to the popular will? Uh, so there's a lot broader questions that are involved here, and they range from the more easily imagined, like making internet platforms public utilities, to the harder to imagine uh, uh, components like building a democracy that actually works for the people rather than for private interest groups and uh, big corporations uh, so that we can, you know, effectively use government to, to regulate and uh, advocate for content moderation policies that work for the people. Um, I think that I closed the book with, uh, you know, sort of the most vague uh, notion of what it would look like. And I think that a lot of the sort of uh, aesthetics and discourse that I see online around the meme of uh, fully automated luxury gay space communism is really the, the sort of atmosphere and goals that, that I think maybe the movement could look to implementing because you sort of need a, a utopian ideal to, to push towards. Uh, idealists have a, a big role to play in this even though I myself am, am much more cynical and have a hard time thinking like that. 
So now reflecting a little bit on, on the whole society and like society as a whole. So why do you think it's so difficult for us to have these conversations? Um, I think that there's a, I mean, really, there's so many answers to that question, right? Uh, and uh, I mean, some of it will always be a mystery or baffling, right? Uh, uh, one of the things that I say in the book is that uh, if, if you read uh, Michel Foucault's work in the history of sexuality, and he's talking about uh, the Victorian era, and he says that, you know, we have this popular conception that the Victorian era was uh, hugely repressed and that they never talked about sex. Uh, and when you look at their diaries and their correspondence and their academic research, what you find is that uh, while they maintain this public face of uh, being repressed or of sexuality being a taboo, in private, they couldn't stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what we have right now is really the inverse of this, right? We have this public facade that we are sexually liberal and, uh, you know, sexuality can be openly discussed uh, when in private, uh, we're not really doing the talking about it. We're not really studying it or thinking about it uh, as, as critically uh, as we need to in general, right? There are select people that do it, but, but in general, we have, a, a, you know, the opposite of what Foucault found in the Victorian period now. Uh, uh, sexuality, you know, is presented publicly as, as uh, fully on the table for discussion, but in discussions, it doesn't come up as much as it should. Uh, and I think that's for uh, a number of reasons, uh, but I can only speculate. One, I think that the, the sort of anti-pornography organizers have found rhetorical strategies that make it really hard to debate with them. Uh, and they do this in two ways. Uh, one, they collapse everyone under 18 into the term children. And then they talk about children's unwanted exposure to pornography. And this rhetorically is really hard to deal with. How can you be uh, uh, arguing in public that children should be able to view pornography, right? Uh, because children calls to mind this uh, uh, idyllic constructed state of like a five-year-old, right? Uh, whereas in reality, what they're talking about is 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, right? It's a very different question of sort of what content uh, uh adolescent should see versus what a child should see. Uh, and we really need to have these discussions rather than close them down by, you know, this rhetorical strategy of, of labeling everyone a child and labeling everyone that, you know, argues that pornography might be accessible to them as, you know, some sort of horrifying, horrifying pervert. Uh, I think the, the other rhetorical strategy that they use is they conflate, uh, uh, sex trafficking with sex work with pornography, right? And you can see this everywhere from their organizing strategies and their own sort of PR to actual legislation in the US, right? So the FOSTA-SESTA Act that was passed in 2017 made this exact conflation. Mm. Uh, and sex work versus sex trafficking is, is very different and in many important ways. Uh, and by conflating the two and using the same sort of uh, regulatory policies for them, uh, a, you don't really help sex trafficking victims much, uh, as was seen in the case of Vasta Sesta, and B, you tend to punish uh, sex workers and porn producers uh, for no good reason. And I think these two rhetorical strategies of conflating uh, all sex work with sex trafficking and of conflating all uh, minors viewing a pornography with children viewing pornography make it really hard to have an open debate uh, because you just can't be seen in public uh, making a counter argument to, to either of these claims. Um, you don't want to be the, the senator or the congressman, you know, getting up on the pedestal and, and arguing against a, an, a sex trafficking bill or against a child pornography bill. Um, so I think some of the rhetorical strategies really close down debate and make it really hard to, to have an open conversation about this and to find more sensible policies that, that hurt fewer people. Uh, there's a lot longer sort of historical narratives that you could draw in here that would take a whole nother interview around uh, sort of the, you know, puritanical, you know, theological sexual mores of early America uh, to the, the changing more sexual mores of America, you know, as we move to uh, industrial society uh, and the ways that they're shot through with uh, racial, gendered and class antagonisms, all of which still play a huge role in sort of how we think about sex, how we talk about sex, uh, and you know what is seemly or unseemly in, in the public sphere. Uh, and these also are uh, 
in many instances, huge barriers to, to having the conversations we need to have uh, to, to sort of get on the same page and, and sort of make policies that better take care of everyone that is in our society. So how optimistic are you that we will eventually come around? Do you think it will require sort of generational changes? <laughs> Uh, you're asking the wrong person, right? Because as I said, I'm a, I'm a cynic, right? So I think that uh, most uh, activist struggles are ones that uh, you can never sit back and feel comfortable uh, having won. I think they have to be continually fought generation after generation because sort of reactionary uh, uh, forces don't go away. Uh, they sort of even if you were to eradicate them, that it's a, a style of thinking that can originate on its own without, you know, having indoctrination or being taught. And so I think that, that uh, you know, these struggles are probably going to have to be fought generation after generation for a long time uh, before they are settled in any way that, that lets us not have to worry about them or put them on the back burner for our sort of activist agendas. Um, I do think that concrete material gains can be made because, as I said, I think there's legal structures in place uh, to facilitate it. And I think that the grassroots organizing network is already built, right? So you don't have to start a movement from scratch uh, to, to see progress on this. Uh, but, you know, the idea that, you know, we could organize for five years, get changes, and then just have the internet we want forever is, is probably too idealistic to be possible. I think it's going to take a, a lot of sort of organizing and activism that that doesn't stop once, you know, sort of signal victories have been achieved. So what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, The Digital Closet, surprised you the most? What discoveries surprised me the most? Um, I think that the thing that surprised me the most was uh, when I started looking at the data sets that uh, algorithms were trained on, I thought the biases would be more implicit, right? I thought I would have to do like close readings uh, or make a lot of arguments that, that something was biased uh, and used maybe advanced theory to sort of show how it perpetuated norms. Uh, and I wasn't prepared for, you know, how blatantly biased it is, right? Like there are biases in these data sets that I could show to any average person and they would be able to, without question, tell you what is the bias and why. Uh, so, for instance, in ImageNet, the, the large collection of images that you feed into these algorithms to train them how to recognize objects, uh, the category for Black people, over 7% of it was people in Blackface, right? You don't need advanced critical race theory to explain how that's a problematic bias in the data set. Anyone that looks at it knows that that's a problem. Uh, it had a category for sluts. Uh, it was all uh, sort of provocatively, uh, well, assumedly provocatively posed women and trans women. Uh, they were fully clothed in many instances. Uh, uh, a lot of them did not look to me as if I, I wouldn't identify them as sluts. And I don't really understand the sort of how the categorization was made, but you can look at the category and immediately know that it's problematic and look at the way that the, the gender binary is working there and, and understand the ways that it's uh, sort of reaffirming you know, gender roles, uh, patriarchal gender roles, uh, and heteronormativity. Uh, and there's just lots of things like that. If you look at the, the sort of, uh, the data set word net, which sort of provides the labels that you can plug on, that you can tag images with, right? So you need to tell the computer, uh, what the image is so that it can learn what it's seeing. Uh, and, the the data set that they use to provide those labels, uh, has really problematic connections. It connects, uh, uh, it connects homosexuality with bestiality. It connects masturbation with self-abuse. Uh, and it connects uh, uh, misogynation with interspecies breeding. Right? So again, you find horribly problematic uh, racial biases uh, and sexual biases uh, that you know, sound like they're, they're coming out of the mouth of like uh, uh, an apartheid legislator or a Jim Crow era uh, judge, right? Um, and these are right there embedded in the data sets uh, that these uh, algorithms are being trained on to understand and interpret the world. So do you have any favorite 
good representations of uh, the communities in the popular media sort of that really brings forward you know these communities and uh, makes people think about uh, all of these okay so if i if i understand the question right i would say that uh for me if i was looking for sort of the public face of some of these struggles uh it's really a handful of journalists uh that have done uh, a hugely important job of cataloging some of the history of what has happened by publishing pieces in myriad newspapers and magazines online uh, over the past decade. Uh, one of whom who was hum hugely influential for me was Violet Blue, who wrote the foreword for the book. Uh, Violet has been you know, writing about this for a long time now uh, and not getting as much traction as she should have gotten for uh, such horrifying stories that were being published uh, in important places on the internet. Uh, Samantha Cole wrote pieces for like this for uh, Vice. There's there's many other reporters that, uh, or not many other, there's, there's a handful of other reporters that have been cataloging this as it's been happening. And they were essential for me in starting to piece together my archive and finding sort of instances of, uh, you know, overzealous censorship or anti-queer censorship online. Uh, and I think that that they are really uh, the people that I would look to as sort of presenting the public face for this uh, and of representing these communities when when no one else would. Uh, and I, I think we'll, I, we'll be seeing, seeing more sort of documentaries and podcasts on, on this topic as well. I mean, that's the hope, right? Uh, uh, my hope is that this is the the beginning of research. Sorry, let me say that again. My hope is that the book, now that it's published, is the beginning of research rather than the end of research, right? It's not the final say. I don't have the full story. I don't have all the data. Uh, it's the platform to begin doing other things. And like I said, even if that means tearing down everything that I've done to, to do it better, I think that's what needs to be done. Uh, and so my sincere hope is that... Uh, you know, the book can call attention to an issue of great importance and that people can build on it, destroy it, reconfigure it uh, to, to sort of add to it until we have a, a much stronger set of researchers working on it, a much stronger set of activists and uh, engaged community members contributing to it uh, so that we can have a, a more diverse set of thinkers uh, and strategies and tactics come out of it. Well, this has been a truly insightful discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yeah, of course. I have uh, two things that I'm currently working on. Uh, the first is sort of an extension of this book, right? So as I noted, when I was trying to piece together the archive for the book of, you know, what had happened, what had been censored, when and where, uh, it was really hard. Uh, and the places that cataloged it were ephemeral. And so one thing I'm really hoping to do in the next year or two is uh, work together uh, to develop some partnerships uh, and apply for some grants uh, and figure out the best way to implement them so that I can construct a, a database uh, that people can submit instances of censorship, uh, of queer censorship to, uh, that we can use for research. Uh, and along with that, we'll need to study things like best practices uh, of maintaining privacy, uh, of determining who has access to the data and for which type of research, uh, how to maintain the database, how to make it user-friendly, all that sort of stuff. But that's one thing I hope to do going forward so that we can uh, produce much more systematic accounts of what's going on, uh, and particularly accounts that have more uh, quantifiable data, because you know that's the language that's spoken in Silicon Valley, and and without that, it's really going to be hard to to get them to pay enough attention or change policies. So, that's one big project. Uh, and then the other that's you know tangentially related is um, you know I've never done anything with my dissertation research to this point, and that's going to be the the next book project. Uh, and that looks at how, you know, the implementation of early large data sets and early computing in the United States was uh, used for Jim Crow uh, era legislation and apartheid governments, governance, uh, particularly by targeting variables that were correlated with race rather than race itself. So that it could, you know, avoid public scrutiny, avoid uh, judicial challenge. Uh, and it looks at things like... Uh, 
the housing market, uh, insurance, uh, other areas where early large data sets were collected and used to uh, offer a worse deal to minorities in the U.S. than to white people uh, from the period of about 1890 to 1945. Oh, these sounds super exciting. I hope you come and talk to us again after you publish your next book. <laughs> I'd be happy to. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your latest book? Yeah, uh, they can find it on my website, which is just my name, alexandermonet.com. They can find the book on uh, MIT Press's website or on my website. And I'd encourage them to use uh, a local bookstore or uh, a platform like Indiegogo to to purchase the book so that they can help local local bookstores uh, with their purchase. Uh, They can also find my faculty page at George Mason. Uh, They can find me uh, on Twitter. I'm at Alex underscore Monet. Uh, And I'd invite anyone that has you know, instances of uh, anti-queer censorship that has ideas, that has questions to, to reach out. I'm more than happy to chat. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Galina. It was great to talk with you.